Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that has no choice but to talk about the elections for 2020. Today we have Walida and Ambria. Uh, today we are talking about the 2020 elections and we have um, an amazing guest today with us. We are talking with Megan Day, who you might know from her work in uh, Jacobin. She's also a member of East Bay DSA and although has a Twitter account, does something very smart with it. She doesn't actually tweet. It's really great. We should all learn from her. Um, Megan, welcome. <laughs> Hi, you... thanks for having me. Sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? I mean, you pretty much covered it. I'm a member of East Bay DSA. I'm pretty active in my chapter. I'm a socialist, and I write for Jacobin, which is a socialist magazine, and I go on socialist podcasts in the evening between my socialist writing work and my socialist chapter organizing work, so that's pretty much the full picture. <laughs> Um, sounds like a lot of socialists I know, actually. Very, very busy. Um, so you covered, uh, early last month, I believe, you covered Bernie Sanders, uh, his campaign launch. Um, what was your overall impression of the Sanders campaign launch? Because, you know, he took a while to say that he was going to run, although everyone kind of assumed he was going to run. Um, I think he was, I don't know what he was doing, testing the field, trying to get everyone else to declare first. Um, but he came out pretty strong. What, what did your, what was your impression of like how the campaign opened, um, and any differences that you note between his campaign this time around versus 2016? Yeah. Well, I think in terms of why it took him a while to announce, I think he was just teasing, getting people excited, worked for me. I was like really stoked when he finally announced. Um, so yeah, I, I have I've been covering Bernie's campaign since he announced and a little bit before actually, and I'm going to keep doing that for Jacobin. And I did have the opportunity to go to his first speech in Brooklyn and then his second speech in Chicago back to back. Um, I will also say that people say that he's too old to run, and I did two stops on his tour, and I was like absolutely fucking exhausted by the end of it, and he just kept going. So, you know, he's he's got the energy. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of major things that I noticed that are different. First of all, a lot is the same. This is to be expected from Bernie Sanders. He is nothing if not consistent. That's what people love about him. He's been talking about wealth inequality and corporate domination and, you know, working people's rights to a dignified life for like ever, for decades and decades. So a lot is the same as last time. But he also is someone who's capable of changing and adjusting uh, to, you know, changing realities and to feedback that he gets. And so there are two major differences that I noted this time. The first one is has to do with racial diversity and racial justice. So I want to preface this by saying that I think that Bernie Sanders had a really phenomenal racial justice plan in 2015. He actually had a document that was called the Racial Justice Plan, mm -hmm. and it it broke racial injustice into five categories, which he identified as physical violence, political violence, legal violence, economic violence, and environmental violence. And then he offered truly no less than 45 distinct policy proposals addressing these, right? So, and he was slammed on the trail for, you know, overlooking race constantly. Um, and I think that he, you know, from a policy perspective, that absolutely wasn't true. I think in his heart, it absolutely wasn't true. I think that his rhetoric struggled a little bit. He was sort of hoping that his platform would speak for itself, um, and it actually didn't. And this time, he's realized that this is going to be a weak spot for him in dealing with the media, if not necessarily dealing with POC voters, for what it's worth. POC voters much prefer Bernie. It's kind of split by age, for the most part, with older voters sometimes preferring other candidates and younger POC voters overwhelmingly preferring Bernie. But, you know, he knows that he's going to have to deal with this in the press, and... So he actually came up with, I thought, 
Um, he gave he gave a wonderful speech in Brooklyn, um, where he talked a little bit about his own history, uh, his own activist history, and then he gave another speech in Chicago where he really doubled down on this, and he talked about his history uh, as an activist in the civil rights movement, and then he's sort of pivoted into like a new way of talking about racial justice, um, which was to talk about how poverty compounds prejudice and vice versa, instead of letting his platform do the talking and having there be some sort of disjuncture between Bernie's supposed commitment to economic justice and what people sort of assumed was like an ambiguous commitment to racial justice. So he really kind of wove those two together in a way that I think was really fantastic. And he's been doing a really good job talking about it ever since he announced his campaign. Um, I would encourage anybody if they want to go dig up the Chicago speech, if you want to see what I'm talking about. I mean, it is, I was there for an hour, for an hour or so he gave one of the best speeches on the relationship between racial injustice and economic injustice that I've genuinely ever heard in my life. So I, I hope that he keeps doing that. And I think he will. Um, I also noticed that his crowd was more diverse this time racially than, than at least than I understood it to be last time, though I myself never actually went to a Bernie rally last time. Um, because being excited about Bernie Sanders is actually what turned me into the kind of person who would go to rallies. So <laughs> this is my first round. Um, so, so I actually spoke to a bunch of people in the crowd in Brooklyn and I recommend that listeners go check that out. Um, there's uh, an article that I wrote for Jacobin called among the Brooklyn Bernie bros, which was like kind of a tongue in cheek title. It came out the same day, completely coincidentally with this piece in New York magazine that was like about the like left, like literati, Twitterati of actual Brooklyn. It was like actual, an actual profile of like Brooklyn leftists, but the title of mine was just oh, supposed right. to be like kind of a joke. Um, and it's and I you should you should see how the young people of color that I spoke to in Brooklyn talked about his campaign and talked about the relationship between race and class because it's it's pretty exciting. Um, it's clear to me that uh, people who are really interested in thinking about those relationships are not uh, holding Bernie's campaign at, ar at an arm's length. On the contrary, they're actually extraordinarily enthusiastic about Bernie's campaign, and that's kind of the site of the action a little bit. So that's the first thing that I noticed was different. Um, not maybe not different, like maybe not com like a complete about face or anything, but different in the sense that it's definitely like augmented in this in this new campaign. And the second thing is an enhanced focus on what I guess you would call extra parliamentary movements, just like activism that happens outside of the established, you know, channels of state power. Um, this ties back a little bit into how he was speaking about his own political history, uh, both in New York and in Chicago. Uh, he, he starts that story. He's been starting that story now. You know, Bernie doesn't like to talk about himself. He hasn't talked about himself like at all prior to this. So I, I, from what I understand, he was actually had to be pushed to talk about himself and took a long time to figure out how he actually wanted to do it. So this is his sort of like very uncomfortable debut of him talking about himself. Um, He's doing a great job. And I think that uh, one of the strongest pieces of that is when he talks about his civil rights activism in Chicago when he was a college student, when he was fighting racial discrimination in housing and education. And, you know, like I said, he starts the story of him being a politician. He starts it before he was formally a politician, before he had any title to speak of, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a theme that we're seeing emerge in his campaign this time around, is how important it is to be an ordinary person and an activist and an organizer, not necessarily to run for office or to vote for people who are running for office, but like I said, extra parliamentary movements of the working class. So I'll, I have a little anecdote about that, which is that in Iowa, people were chanting, you know, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And he's done this a few times. He stopped them and he said, it's not me, it's all of us or something like that. And then they just started chanting, not me, us, not me, us. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. <laughs> That's a video and, then, and then he actually explained, in Iowa, he explained what he meant by that. He said, the truth is that the powers that be, they are so powerful, they have so much money that no one person, not the best president in the world, can take them on alone. The only way we transform America is when millions of people stand up and fight back. So this is great. This is actually really important because in addition to being, you know, really inspiring, it, it actually shows that he has 
a theory that's actually appropriate to where the movement against capitalism is in its trajectory. Um, when he was in Chicago, he was talking about his civil rights activism, and he said something that was really telling. He said, my activities here in Chicago taught me a very important lesson that I have never forgotten. Real change never takes place from the top on down. It always takes place from the bottom on up. Um, so he's been saying stuff like that throughout his campaign. And there's a very good strategic reason for him to value grassroots, you know, left-wing and working-class movements. And that's that it's that if he becomes president, he's going to need them to accomplish anything ambitious. And that's because of the particular path that he took, the route that he took to where he is. So in like a more ideal scenario, one that we as socialists, if we could like, you know, sketch it out um, beforehand, which unfortunately we don't get to do, which always pisses me off. But if we could just like figure out, you know, exactly how we wanted things to go, maybe an openly socialist, you know, presidential candidate would be the culmination of like a very intensive decades long political project where we'd actually, you know, populated the electoral political sphere between like, you know, the, the vast space between dog catcher and president, there would be like more than a few socialists in there. Mm -hmm. And, and this candidate would sort of rise organically through the ranks of that dynamic and powerful organized left, which would also consist of things like, you know, very strong unions that had a radical character and like community groups that were knitted into coalitions and ideally a mass political party of the working class with like a democratic membership structure and a credible means of candidate discipline. So ideally, the candidate would be like the thing that comes out of that, the candidate for president. But that's absolutely not what happened at all. Um, instead, what happened is that, you know, last time that class politics was really on the table was like before the rise of neoliberalism in the late 70s, early 80s. And then unions were hollowed out. Uh, the organized left was completely placed on the back foot. Socialism became like it went from being a powerful taboo, which was actually something we could work with, to just being like a distant, foggy memory of an authoritarian dystopia, which is like not good for socialists. Mm -hmm. So and Bernie just kind of marched to the beat of his own drum, right, for decades. And then things started to percolate a little bit. You saw Occupy and Black Lives Matter. And then he was there to be able to provide electoral leadership to it and sort of to that movement and like act as a tribune for socialist ideas. But there's a big problem with this sequence of events, which is that there are very few serving politicians who are actually sympathetic to Bernie's politics and even fewer who actually know how to stand up to capitalists or like have a network of people to support them in, in doing that because it's hard. So he actually doesn't have that many allies within the state that he can rely on to move major parts of his agenda through the legislature. And the only way out of that mess is for a mass movement of people, ordinary working people, to exert our own pressure on politicians that rivals the pressure exerted by capitalists, right? Forcing even politicians who don't agree with us to weigh their options and make concessions to the working class. So, you know, we can accomplish that in a lot of ways, like strikes, um, protests, media campaigns that create new moods in the electorate and sort of like threaten politicians' careers that way. But the, this is all winding around to my main point, which is that when Bernie says that he can't deliver, like he can't deliver the reforms that we need by himself, that he needs help from millions of people, He's not just like flattering people. He's actually insisting that extra parliamentary movements are the key to political sex success, which is a correct theory of power and a correct theory of how socialists should go about exercising power, given that he is, in fact, running for president. And he has, I think, a decent shot of becoming president. I mean, it's not in the bag, but it's pretty decent. And I think this dovetails nicely into uh, another question for you. I actually went and voted today. We had a runoff oh, election. Yeah. Yeah, I voted for um, Tony Preckwinkle, uh, who was up against Lightfoot. So it's like real Hogwarts hours over here yeah, with the names. Very Hogwarts. You're right. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't get to vote for Bernie Sanders because um, it's 2019. And the presidential election doesn't happen until November of 2020. And you're kind of answering this already. But is there any more you want to say about how we as socialists and activists should relate to political elections in the U.S.? I mean, the first thing which you point out, um, or I think you were getting at, is that you have to do stuff 
between elections because elections don't happen every day, but class struggle still has to happen every day. So um, actually, it's funny because there was this um, like CNN, I think, published some documents from Bernie Sanders's time in a party called the Liberty Union Party in the 70s in Vermont. And it actually showed that Bernie left the party, which he was the chairman of for a while. He he left them because he thought that they weren't doing enough between elections, which I completely agree with. That Because the role of a political party, if we were to have one of our own, like if DSA were to develop into some kind of political party, it certainly wouldn't be focused only on elections. You have to do all kinds of things between elections. So, you know, that's really important to think about when you're thinking about how to relate to electoral politics. Kind of rule number one for socialists is don't think of electoral politics as exclusively a means to an end of getting elected people in power who can then sort of administer socialism, but think about it as part of a really large um, set of tactics that you're using sort of every day that are mutually reinforcing each other to actually build capacities for class struggle, right? Um, but, you know, we also, just to go back to how we actually do participate in or around elections, I have a theory that I'm sort of working on about about this particular question in concert with some of my other comrades in DSA. And the theory that we have is that there is such a thing as class struggle electoral politics, which socialists should engage in. Um, this is contra the idea that we should not engage in electoral politics at all because the state has nothing to offer us or it's sort of hopelessly captured by the capitalist class and is therefore a spoiled site of class struggle or something. And then, or that we shouldn't engage with electoral politics until we've like already built up a huge self-organized workers movement outside the state and then it can form its own party and intervene with that party. This idea of class struggle electoral politics basically posits that there are ways of relating to the state right now that can actually build work the worker movements that socialists dream of, right? Um, but not every type of electoral politics counts as class struggle electoral politics. So there are criteria. And there are three criteria that we're working with right now. And those are that a class struggle politician is someone who uses electoral politics to, well, number one, raise the expectations of ordinary working people. Number two, to unite them against a common capitalist enemy. And number three, to promote working class movements outside the state, which was what I was just, that the third one is the one we were just talking about. But I'll, I'll tell you more about the first two real quick before we move on. First is raising expectations. So socialists obviously believe that all people deserve things like a good education, a safe and comfortable home, quality health care clean air, clean water, clean environment, free time to enjoy our lives, things like that. But in our society, obviously, these things are often luxuries that are only enjoyed by rich people. And then politicians tell working class people that it's impossible for society to provide these things to people because either we can't afford it, um, which is an obvious sham because we're constantly giving tax breaks to billionaires and we're funding, you know, interminable wars, or because it would be political suicide to try to get it and then those politicians wouldn't be able to offer us anything because even worse people would win, right? Like that's the sort of bait and switch that they do. Um, and the result of this is that many working class people are resigned to having a diminished quality of life, even though they know that they deserve all of the things that we just laid out that people deserve, right? So a class struggle politician aims to raise the expectations of the working class, which is to say to turn that sense of resignation into a sense of hope and determination. And they do that in a couple of ways. They do that by challenging this idea that we don't have the resources to give people a dignified life. And Bernie is really good at that, at this. And you know who else is really good is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's really good at challenging that idea about limited resources or scarcity. And the second one is challenging and expanding the notion of what's politically possible. So a, a class struggle politician doesn't say, oh, this thing that you want and need can never happen because of how shitty society is, but like I'm out here trying to do what is possible for you. They don't say that. They say what you need is completely politically possible as long as ordinary people and politicians alike are prepared to fight for it, right? 
So that's the first one is raising expectations of the working class. And, and the second one is this idea of uniting working people against a common capitalist enemy. So it's not enough to just make those ambitious demands that raise people's expectations. A class struggle politician also has to explain why those demands haven't been met yet. And they specifically have to focus on the obstacles that are being thrown up by the ruling class and focus on the under, underlying dynamics of capitalism that empower like a handful of wealthy people. So politicians from both, both major parties, are they like routinely issue these vague calls for unity and harmony among all sectors of society. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard, you've heard that. Yeah. But <laughs> right. They're like, why can't we all just get along? Yeah. I'm going to bring us all together. Um, Empty platitudes. But, uh, Cory Booker seems to be like trying to be oh, the king of that right now. Oh yeah, for sure. He's going to bring us all together. So, but you're right. But like a class struggle politician doesn't do that. A class struggle politician knows that class conflict is a perpetual feature of capitalism, and the only question that remains is just whether the working class is going to succeed in fighting back. So they don't paper over conflict. And they, they don't call for just like vague unity. They call for a very specific type of unity, which is the unity of the working class in struggle against the capitalist class. Or if you're Bernie, like the millionaires and the billionaires or the 1% or whatever you want to call the elite minority. But the point is that they're, they're uniting the vast majority of people across lines of difference between those people, members of the working class. They're uniting them against the people that they're all most different from which is billionaires. And I don't know if you've ever crunched the numbers on billionaires, but billionaires are not just like richer millionaires. They're like actually a whole different species of person. They're like aliens. Um, like so, literally though. Yeah, like actually. <laughs> like actual lizard aliens. people. They're lizard people, yeah. So a class struggle politician uses every opportunity that they can to tell a new story about society. And like I said, it's not a, it's not a story that lacks conflict it actually has a protagonist and an antagonist. And the antagonist is the tiny capitalist class full of billionaire lizard people. And the protagonist is the huge and diverse working class who have to come together. This is also the story that Marx told about how social change would happen. And the third one is just building movements of ordinary people outside the state, which I already talked about earlier, so I won't repeat myself. Um, except to say that a class struggle politician has to dedicate their career basically to creating new possibilities for ordinary people to self-organize because that's the only way to affect real and lasting change. So the question of is like, how should socialists relate to class struggle politicians? Like if you've heard all that and you agree with me that that is a phenomenon, that's like a type of thing that exists, what should socialists do? Well, we should identify them. We should endorse them. We should work to get them elected and then we should become them also. Um, yeah. And I and then as a final but very important note that goes back to what I said at the very, very beginning, this is not at all mutually exclusive with non-electoral work. So it's actually really important when you're doing electoral work to be thinking about building the political capacities of socialist organizers so that they can more effectively do non-electoral work. And a story that I have about that is that in the East Bay, we worked really, really, really hard all through the summer and the fall to elect a democratic socialist named Javanka Beckles, who is a queer, black, Latina, immigrant, democratic socialist and member of East Bay DSA and an all around awesome person who got like 96,000 votes, which is actually more votes than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Julia Salazar combined because our district is massive. Yeah, so it was a it was a huge huge um, it was a huge race. It was a very expensive race because her opponent, whose name was Buffy Wicks, is Buffy Wicks. Um, Buffy. <laughs> Buffy. Yeah, her name was Buffy. Buffy. Oh no, it gets better. Her name is Buffy Wicks, and she uh, was Hillary Clinton's California field man operations manager, and she nicknamed herself Buffy the Bernie Slayer. Okay. <laughs> I, have a, I have a perfect picture of her in my head. Yeah, I yeah. I, you know, I've met her. The picture is, yeah, you got it. Um, <laughs> so, so 
Buffy was bankrolled by the absolute, you know, wealthiest possible people. Some of them are were Republicans. Some of them were just random billionaires who don't live in California. Some of them were charter school magnates. Some of them were tech tycoons, you know, all that. And we fought really, really hard in our chapter to get Javanka elected. And we didn't. Buffy won. She is now our state assembly person for our district. But what we did do was popular a we completely changed the terms of the of the race. The race became a complete referendum on corporate money on and on the difference between a liberal and a leftist, which is fantastic because millions of people got to participate in that conversation. And uh, B, um, we built all these skills. We built these skills in our chapter. And the other thing is that, well, this is what kind of what I'm winding around to is that when Javanka lost, when Buffy won, we had already heard, our chapter had already heard that the Oakland teachers were thinking about going out on strike as a part of the teacher's strike wave. One of the main reasons that Oakland teachers wanted to go out on strike was because of the incredible um, austerity that was being imposed by, you know, by the state. And part of that story of austerity is charterization and privatization in Oakland. And the charter school companies that um, are responsible for making that happen and the pro-charter interests who are actually not part of the charter school companies, they're just pe rich people who want their taxes to be lower, so they just want to destroy public education. Those were literally the exact same individuals who had been donating to Buffy Wicks' campaign. And so we, on a, on a dime, it was like we didn't really pause. We were just, we just pivoted our chapter's activities directly from the Javanka campaign to a massive strike solidarity effort for the Oakland teacher strike. And it was like keeping all the balls in the air, literally continuing to fight the same enemy because there is only one ruling class at the end of the day. And some of them, I mean, these are individuals. There are not that many people who are as rich as these people. They have names, they live in your city, you can find out who they are. And in, in, in our case, it was some of the exact same people. Um, and we taught people during the Javanka campaign how to phone bank, how to cut turf sheets, how to organize, you know, members of the chapter, how to navigate and, you know, improve on our internal structures in our chapter, how to have conversations with people that aren't awkward and that are about socialism. And we're able to just like pivot that immediately into doing something that is non-electoral, but not at all unrelated, right? Yeah. So the sort of broader point that I'm trying to make is that how should socialists relate to class struggle politicians once we found one, once we have one that we want to back, is we have to work on focusing our political skills because it really is, like Bernie says, not me, us. Like it really is about all of us and building us all into effective socialists who can intervene in the world with maximum impact. And I think that if we, if our candidate wins, but we haven't equipped people with the political skills and the relationships and the confidence and the determination to keep the fight going, then I think we've lost an important opportunity, even if our candidate wins. But if we've attended to these tasks, then even if we lose, we're still in a better position to win the next fight and the one after that and the one after that, including all of the many fights between and around elections. Yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, um, when you talked about how you know, you're right. Bernie is always saying change always comes from the never comes from the top down, always comes from the bottom up. And I know there is always a debate internally. You know, I'm also a member of DSA. I'm also a socialist. We have our own electoral stuff going on here that we've been pretty successful with. But in tandem, we've been doing a lot of other stuff in terms of rent control and climate justice and and other things in the city. Um, and it really does build up the skill set of organizers and activists, people who have otherwise never done anything political in their lives, have been inspired by this presidential campaign of Sanders. Um, and they've been sort of moved into action because of him and because of, of what they're hearing him say. It's, it's, he, he is very unique in that he is an activist himself. So seasoned activists listen to him and watch him talk. And they're like, they recognize, like we, I recognize some of the rhetoric he uses. I recognize some of the, some of the, like, stuff that he talks about is very much the stuff of activism talk. Um, but he manages to translate it into stuff that other people that maybe are not activists will understand and can relate to and can see in their own lives. Um, and, you know, I know uh, the election is a year away and I know that Bernie Sanders, uh, 
he is um, the leftist choice for president. He's probably the progressive choice for president. Um, I know some of his votes in the past have been problematic for different people. And I'm not just talking about like the SESTA-FOSTA vote for sex workers, um, but also, you know, people, including me, were not happy with his com- some of his comments on Venezuela, um, his constant and inexplicable deference to John McCain. I'll never understand. But like, yeah, I don't, I don't get that. I don't get that. But, you know, <sighs> Maybe it's just something politicians have to do and say in public. I have no idea. But you know, John McCain did him some secret favor. Some at secret. Some point. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows what he's got on him? He knows some secret about <laughs> Bernie Sanders. It's like it's a John McCain's ghost sort of like blackmail thing. Like yeah. if Bernie doesn't keep paying lip service to him, then John McCain's ghost is going to like fuck him up somehow. <laughs> going to haunt him every night. Um, but like it is kind of. It is kind of impressive. In fact, it's astonishing that that somebody is running for president in the like belly of the empire, of the world's empire, the capitalist beast that's consuming the world. And they have socialist they, they, in their name, in their like title, in their self-description. They call themselves democratic socialists. That's, to me, something absolutely astonishing. Um, I think it's revolutionary. Um, and he seems, you know... There, there's also always been, like you were talking about, that sort of vein in, in leftist circles and leftist activism where, well, how much of our energy do we put into electoral within, our, within a specific um, system that's built to make us fail, right? It's not built for us to actually engage in. It's built for us to not engage in. And, and we should be building power outside of those structures. Um, but, but when I imagine a president, you know, when I imagine somebody like Bernie Sanders in, in the White House versus somebody like Trump or even Obama or even a Hillary Clinton, I'm forced to remember um, FDR, who, <laughs> you know, if, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when, you know, FDR, when when Montgomery Ward 70 years ago in the 1940s refused or in the late 1930s, I think, refused to comply with a labor agreement, uh, sent in the National Guard to seize the company. Um, and actually, if you search online, you can see a picture of Montgomery Ward being physically carried out of a building by the National Guard. He's still sitting in his office chair. Right. And and then I think about how like this particular Trump uh, regime would respond to labor unrest or climate action or protests, um, you know, and the president does matter. The president can do things that can help hurt or at the very least be neutral about what the public does uh, as it moves into class struggle, as it moves into sort of trying to change society. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about an article that you wrote called Wielding the Imperial Presidency, uh, which sounds menacing, but it's actually a really great article. And in it, you talk about what a president could really do um, without the legislator. Now, legislate, legislative branch sort of being there to support everything that they do. You talked a little bit about what can be done outside of government what people can do to, to move the conversation and to get the things that they need changed. Um, but why don't we talk a little bit about what you think a president, like a President Bernie Sanders, can do if he's occupying that office in terms of things like climate justice or uh, military uh, and the empire, um, s- social justice, all those kinds of things. Yeah, it's actually really exciting. I was assigned this story. This wasn't an idea that I had. Um, My editors at Jacobin were like, go find out what Bernie could do. And I was like, okay. And it turns (laughs) out that a president has an awful lot of power. A president is a very powerful person, a president of America anyway. Um, And, you know, this was a really interesting and good article for me to write because I'm really genuinely starting from this place of like mass movements are the thing that is required for lasting social change, right? Because that's a sort of Marxist theorem. But I just, it's not mutually exclusive with aggressive action from the top. Like a president can do things to drastically change the parameters of the whole political discourse and legitimate or delegitimate um, different ideas. I mean, you think about the way that Donald Trump has behaved as president. He's issued some executive orders that have been ruled unconstitutional because, you know, you can't you can't just issue an executive order and then it's like never going to be challenged. They're actually 
kind of tenuous. Uh, modern presidents issue hundreds of them. Some presidents have issued thousands of them. And they get overturned all the time or they just get reversed by the next president or whatever. But sometimes they actually do result in lasting change. And sometimes, even if they don't, what they, they result in change in a, in a different way, which is that they're just like changing what's the sense of what's possible in politics you know the travel ban that donald trump instituted by executive order was ruled unconstitutional but it absolutely has changed the tenor of american politics vis-a-vis -vis immigration and has heightened islamophobia and has you know ch changed the way that we talk about you know people who come from other countries in this country it's been like a massive so you know bernie sanders could certainly change the American political sphere in a completely different way, in a positive way, through the use of executive orders as well. Executive orders are the only thing that a president can do that like doesn't have to, you know, go through somebody else. And it's really important for Bernie because as we stated earlier, Bernie doesn't is not gonna have any like friends in the state. So he'd probably have to rely on executive orders a lot. And I've seen some people complain and they're like, well, why would you, expanding executive powers is bad because like the next person will come into office and then they'll, they'll be really bad and they'll use it for bad. And it's like, you know, they're going to do that anyway. And also it's not about expanding the powers. It's using them to the, the like fullest potential in order to not only materially change the lives of working people, but also create new openings and new possibilities for working people to get out from under the heel of capital so they can organize for themselves for lasting change. And when those are the stakes, it kind of all of the questions I think about, like, you know, the Im improper, imprudent use of executive orders tend to melt away, at least for me. Um, so, yeah, I did write this article about what he could do as a president. And there's some pretty exciting stuff in there. Um, I talked to experts who know about these things because I don't really know how, you know, I don't, I don't know my constitution forwards and backwards. But he could do a lot of things. So like with climate, he could direct all of the appropriate, you know, executive branch agencies, including like the Environmental Protection Agency, the Interior Department, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Department of Defense is one of the worst polluters in the world. He could direct all of these agencies to account for the greenhouse gas impacts of any proposed infrastructure project and declare that any project with the potential to exacerbate climate change should just be flatly rejected. Obviously, it would lead to lit litigation, you know, the companies would sue and it, it would be kind of a shit show probably, but actually it'd be more of a shit show for the companies because they'd be tied up in legislation. And meanwhile, we'd be, we'd be taking necessary action against climate change immediately. He could issue an executive order directing federal agencies to and account for environmental justice impacts of all pro proposed infrastructure projects too, and reject ones that do disproportionate harm to communities of color and poor people. He could, uh, just by executive order, he could rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, um, which you know is flawed, but that being said, it's really still important for the United States to be a part, a part of it and a part of the sort of global solution to climate change. And he could establish an interagency task force to lay out the parameters of a Green New Deal. He could, with the stroke of a pen, he could stop all lease sales for coal, oil, gas, uranium mining, other forms of mining and extraction on federal land. And he could bar any company with environmental violations in the last 10 years from securing federal contracts or 20 years or whatever. Make it however many years you want. These people can't get federal contracts, right? Yeah. Um, thus actually incentivizing corporations to follow environmental law, which they don't do because there are very few consequences for them not doing it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that he could do. I mean, the same is true for foreign policy. If you want to shift in that direction, Bernie, Bernie Sanders would be the commander in chief. He would be in charge of the military. He could withdraw troops from wherever he wanted, wherever they are deployed that he wants them out of. He could, uh, you know, stop the American military from carrying out, you know, unlawful assassinations or whatever other counterterrorism actions and secret bombings and the kill lists and all that. He could just put a stop to it. Uh, he could he could issue an executive order just reestablishing the legitimacy of the war powers resolution, which is something we know he's interested in because he's the author of the first successful invocation of the war powers resolution in Congress when he wrote that bill to um, end U.S. support for the Saudi intervention in Yemen. Um, 
you know, he could do the same thing. Like he could, he could declare that anybody who's worked for a defense contracting company, like can't be appointed to a federal agency to just stop that revolving door. Um, he could establish a commission to conduct a top to bottom review of the military budget. I know this is possible because president Trump recently ordered a task force to identify what he called bloat in the U S postal service. So maybe <laughs> We should identify bloat in the world's most destructive military in like the history of the universe. Yeah, yeah. If there's um, anything I'm concerned about, it's the mil- it's not really my local post office's bloat. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, criminal justice is a funny one because he can't do anything about state and local level criminal justice systems, which is where most of it happens anyway. But he would be his Department of Justice would be in charge of overseeing the federal system. So any criminal justice reform that you can think of, it could be instituted on a federal level. And it could certainly send a powerful message in addition to impacting all of the people who are in the federal system, Um, you know. Any, really anything from like, you know, legalizing marijuana to ha- ending cash bail. Um, he could also commute. I think this is a really good idea. He could just issue an executive order to abandon mandatory minimum sentences in federal prosecution and to pursue non-carceral solutions for low-level offenders. And then also to grant clemency, mass clemency to anyone who was wrongly imprisoned in the federal system under the draconian laws that constituted what we call the war on drugs. Um, Obama kind of did a little bit of this toward the end of his tenure, but in very classic Obama fashion, he made sure that the people he was granting clemency to had already served 10 years of their sentence. And that in some cases that they'd gotten a GED or like held a job or were otherwise demonstrating themselves to be like upstanding uh, inmates. But that's not the the thing about the war on drugs is that these laws should have never been instituted to begin with. So anyone who's in federal prison because of them should just be granted clemency. Bernie Sanders could do that with an executive order. Um, There's a ton of stuff about criminal justice. I'll leave it to you guys to read it. And the same is true for economy. I'll just pick out one thing from the economy section that I wrote because... I think it is like a very big picture thing. And I think it's it shows you really the power of the presidency, which is so last April, Donald Trump issued an executive order in which he he basically ordered all of the agencies to operate by what he called the principles of economic mobility. So, you know, those are going to be good. Um, Those included strengthening work requirements and reserving benefits for only the poorest. So means testing. Uh, reducing what he called wasteful spending by consolidating or eliminating federal programs that are duplicative or ineffective. Those are fancy words for austerity. And then empowering the private sector to step in and solve problems that are currently delegated to the federal government. So that's privatization, right? He basically told all of his agencies that have, that do, that administer social programs to do means testing, austerity, and privatization. So that's us. And Bernie Sanders could have, Right. Bernie Sanders could immediately reverse that order and issue one of his own. He could just issue the exact same order in reverse and call it, say, the principles of economic equality instead of the principles of economic mobility. And then just say we should have universal program design instead of means testing. We should have decommodification instead of privatization. We should have redistribution instead of austerity. And that could be like a guiding set of principles for all of the federal agencies that administer all of the social programs. And then he could use it to refer to when he's, you know, giving more specific tasks to different agencies. And in addition to actually probably having a major material impact on how those agencies actually function, it would also really change the tenor of, our politics, right? It would, at the very least, bring us back to a previous era in, of American politics where social democracy was on the table. It wouldn't necessarily usher in socialism tomorrow, but it would definitely, it would propagate the idea that a government, a state, should actually exist not to maximize profits for the wealthy, but to facilitate a dignified life for working people, for all people, the majority of whom are working people, and that's the foundation that we need, right, in order to convince people of our, persuade them to our our position, which is that we should have a socialist society. Um, and yeah. then I'll leave you 
It would raise, it would raise a little bit of, uh, it would help to raise class consciousness. It would help to sort of focus people on who their actual enemy is, where their actual problems are stemming from the root of their problems. Even if they're not saying, oh, it's capitalism, at least they're identifying a very, a very specific structure that, that's, that is the source of their oppression and of their um, exploitation. Absolutely. And if you think this stuff doesn't matter, I refer you again to all of Donald Trump's extremely racist and xenophobic executive orders. And I would I would challenge you that he has, in fact, made the country more divided along lines of race and nationality because of those actions. Right. So we know that a president's interventions, these are going to get a lot of media attention. They're going to be constantly covered. They're going to have real ramifications. People are going to hear about them, think about them. And it's going to change what people think of as like the normal parameters of politics. Um, I do want to give you one final thing, which is just too exciting for me to not tell you. And it's like this, I should just let you like buy the magazine and read it so that we can like sell magazines. But this is a total spoiler because this is the best one. So I talked to some people from this group called the Debt Collective. And then I talked to some other people who understand how education stuff works. And this woman named Ann Larson from the Debt Collective told me that when Congress was first given the power to issue and collect student loans in 1958, The Department of Education also received a power called Compromise and Settlement, which allows them to waive the right to collect on those loans. And then in in 1965, the Higher Education Act solidified that power in the hands of the Secretary of Education. So that's actually, that's the backdrop for what I'm about to tell you, which is that Mm. Sanders could issue an executive order Mm. directing his Secretary of Education to immediately write off all student loan debt for which the federal government is the creditor. And that's that's the majority of the student loan debt in the United States. But wait, it actually gets even better. Mm. The executive order could then also direct the Department of Education to assume all of the debt of the borrowers who owe money to private lenders and write that off too, reducing American student loan burden from $1.5 trillion to zero. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right. So here's the thing. That would be challenged. It would... (laughs) Would be there would be massive lawsuits. It would be like the whole thing. It would be a huge battle. But don't you want to have that fight? Yes. Don't, oh, yeah. don't you want to have the fight where we're on the precipice of just eliminating all student loan debt? Yes. Yeah. And we have that fight, and then I buy a house. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, I'd go on wow. vacation. Um, I, that's what I would do. Yeah. I'd be like, oh my god, I can go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would lay down for a while because that's usually how I react to big news. Um, <laughs> So I think something I love about this conversation is that um, that we've been having for the past few minutes is that like it's about what we can do with the leftists in power. And I think um, it feels really amazing right now to even think about that. Um, And I feel like we still have to train ourselves to think about oh, if we win, I think because we're so used to like the momentum that's been happening over the past couple of years is just so like mind boggling. Um, And I think sometimes we forget, even I have to remind myself to think beyond the like struggle part. Not that like winning this election would be the end of the struggle or anything like that. But um, ever thinking about winning any victories it seems like counterintuitive almost. Um, so I really like it. And and in that vein, um, what do you think the GOP and or the capitalist class is going to do if it looks like a real leftist might win? And I mean, because the history of revolution, of socialist revolution is also the history of capitalists losing their fucking shit. Um, so if it looks like a real leftist might win, or if a real leftist does win, how how are they going to respond? What are we going to be faced with in that moment? That's a very good question. And it's a good one to ask after the last thing that we just talked about, which is the possibility, which isn't to say this inevitability, that a president could at least initiate the process of canceling all student loan debt. Obviously, the capitalist class is not going to like that. There are people who rely on various industries, also including like the private health insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry, um, who are not going to like redistributive reforms or reforms that are focused on decommodification. 
they are going to lose their fucking minds. But actually, the thing is, they don't really have to even lose their minds in order for them to punish us. Because capitalism is extraordinarily clever, and it has built into it a sort of automatic recoil mechanism that punishes us for trying to change society in a way that threatens capitalist profits. Like I said, it's very clever. So there's this there's this essay I don't necessarily agree with. I'm not endorsing everything this dude has ever written, but there's this essay that I really like called The Market as Prison by a political economist named Charles Lindblom. And I would recommend that you guys look into it if you want to feel pretty grim. Um, I'm going to read you a little quote. He says, uh, many kinds of market reform automatically trigger punishments in the form of unemployment or a sluggish economy. Do we want businesses to carry a larger share of the nation's tax burden? We must fear that such a reform will discourage business investment and curtail employment. Do we want business enterprises to reduce industrial pollution of air and water? Again, we must bear the consequences of the costs to them of their doing so and the resultant declines in investment and employment. Business people do not have to debate whether or not to impose this penalty. They need do no more than tend to their own businesses, which means that without thought of affecting a punishment on us, they restrict investment and jobs simply in the course of being prudent managers of their enterprises. So, end quote. It gives you a sense of, like, this is what I mean by the automatic recoil mechanism. Um, people refer to this as, you know, capital flight or capital strikes. Those are slightly different things. But those are two forms that it can take. Or just like a mild disinvestment causing the economy to slump. If a socialist becomes president and starts trying to do reforms that are going to threaten profits, this is very likely to happen. The question then becomes whether or not the American people are able to see that the problem, the reason that's happening is because capitalism is fundamentally flawed in this way, or the GOP is just going to tell them this is socialism doesn't work. You, your, your, your living standards have like temporarily declined and it's because socialism doesn't work, so we can't try it again. This is actually the major, major threat of a Bernie Sanders presidency. But there's only one way out of it, and it's not to not run Bernie Sanders as a you know, not as pre for president, and it's not to not try to get him to win because the opportunities for expanded class consciousness and for actual material transformation are so large that we actually can't pass up this opportunity. And furthermore, we don't actually have a choice. Like those of us on this podcast are not choosing whether or not Bernie Sanders runs for president and we're not choosing whether or not he wins, right? The only decision that we get to make is how hard we work to build class consciousness between now and then, such that we could possibly get the message out to people that if this happens, it's because, it's precisely because capitalism is not designed for maximum human flourishing. It's designed for to protect the profits of the few at the expense of the many. And that when this happens, it's just further proof that we need to fight even harder to dismantle this system. And I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. It's a tall order. It's only a few years that we have before we have to put this to the test. That said, sometimes history happens very quickly in the course of just a few years. And I think we're already seeing that. Oh, that is heavy. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. So we're just about coming up on time. But I, I wanted to just get one more question to you in. Um, and you talked a little bit about this earlier. But considering, so for our listeners, I, I, I do know that there are 400 other people running for the Democratic primary. Um, I'm not very interested in them. I, I was going to talk about them a little bit, but I don't find them very interesting or compelling. They're your typical neoliberal politicians. There's nothing really we can say about them or talk about with them that's unique or different from what we've already seen from uh, Democratic politicians, um, with the exception of like, you know, Elizabeth Warren's got some great policies uh, Peter Buttigieg has got a couple of things that he said that, uh, that people seem to like, but, but overall, I think, um, there's not really much to say about the other candidates that are running right now with the, with the climate crisis looming and so many workers in the U S and globally, actually, um, millions of people in China and India are going on strike. We're, like you said, we're sort of in a unique moment of history that it, that kind of has a time limit, um, that's running out. And it is overwhelming to think about what it's going to take 
to win a socialist future and to defeat the power of capital. Um, they have all the money, they have all the power, they have all the guns. But like you said, it's not something we can not do. We have to do it. There, there really isn't another choice. So I guess what, <laughs> I guess what I'd like you to, to talk about just a little is what do you think with this election going on and with all the other problems we have for people listening out there that feel a bit overwhelmed or um, don't exactly know what to do, what, what is the best thing that if you are an activist on the left, uh, what is the best thing for you to do right now in your own communities? That's a great question. First of all, I would say that if anyone is listening to this who hasn't joined a socialist organization or a left-wing organization that gives them a place to go plug in and be active on a regular basis, that's your first order of business. There's not really an excuse. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just saying that it's the time for excuses has ended um, because the climate crisis is looming and because we actually have a shot right now. Like we're basically, like you were saying, we are on the precipice of either something extremely good happening or something extremely bad happening. So everyone needs to go join a political organization where they can actually be active in a sustainable way in a network with other people, accountable to other people and working on tangible things. I would recommend DSA. I think, are all of us in DSA? I'm in DSA. Great organization. We're all in DSA. Yes. I'm in the yeah. DSA. It's a good one. So, um, you know, go join go join DSA. There's chapters everywhere. Um, and if there's not a chapter around you, you can be an at-large member. And there are lots of things for you to do if you're an at-large member, too. So in terms of what you should do, what we should do in general right now, I think that there are some major work areas that we need to focus on. The first is engage in either national or local fights, just whatever is happening around you that seems most pressing for universal social programs. You can fight for them in the areas of specifically, I think the best ones are healthcare, housing, and education. So if you want to do like a national thing, you can plug into national Medicare for all work um, because it has seven, a 70%, Medicare for All has a 70% approval rating according to some polls. Just a few years ago in 2014, it had a 20% approval rating. This is what I mean by sometimes history happens really quickly in a couple years. So this is our window for that. If you want to have actual justice in healthcare in this country, if you want to make it so that private insurers don't give people death sentences in order to pad the pockets of a wealthy few, then you can get involved in fighting for universal health care, Medicare for all. You can also fight for universal rent control wherever you live, and you can stand against market-based solutions to the housing crisis and demand public housing as a way to end homelessness and displacement and, you know, housing affordability crisis. You know, fighting for good public housing that is attractive, that is safe, that is comfortable, and that is open to all. So it's actually not means tested and make it good enough that people all up and down the income ladder want to live in it. That's like a way to introduce public housing into the fabric of a life of a city, right? And keep it, you know, strong so that it can withstand the attacks by austerity driven politicians that are always going to be just around the corner. So fighting for, you know, universal social programs and healthcare and housing and fight for tuition free college and university, fight against public education cuts, fight for universal pre-K. These are ways to fight for universal social programs in the realm of education. You can join those struggles wherever you are because teachers are getting screwed wherever you are. Students are getting screwed wherever you live and oppose, you know, the further privatization of public schools, demand quality, demand funding for quality education from pre-K all the way through after college. They do it in other countries. And it's, it's a right. Like people have a right to an education, not so that we, not so that we as a nation can be like competitive with other nations or so that CEOs can have what they need to have like an educated workforce in order to improve their bottom lines. People have a right to an education because Human civilization has produced knowledge over the course of centuries, and it belongs to all of us as a birthright. 
So fight for universal social programs in healthcare, housing, and education. And then I would say another really important thing to do is is labor organizing and solidarity work. You know, support um, and develop. Uh, activists, including maybe yourself, who are engaged in union organizing, um, maybe try to organize your workplace. If you can't organize your own workplace, you know, get involved with a political group that's doing meaningful strike solidarity and labor solidarity work in your community. And be involved in educating yourself and educating others about the history of the labor movement, the history of the working class movement, and be a part of building a new future for the labor movement because the labor movement's at that exact critical juncture too. It's like either something really bad is going to happen to it because unions are kind of on their last legs or we're seeing a new fighting spirit in the American labor movement. Something really good is maybe about to happen, which is the resurgence of a radical labor movement in the United States. So get involved in that or get involved in electoral organizing. And most of this has been about elections. So I think I've covered you know, my opinions on what you should look for in an electoral campaign to be involved in with the criteria for class struggle, electoral politics that I laid out. But DSA is a really good place to go if you don't want to do all that work just by yourself, just like sitting at home trying to figure out who's a class struggle politician. Maybe that's kind of hard. You could go, you know, get involved in DSA and work with your chapter to identify candidates like that, to grow and develop and actually run candidates like that and to work really hard to get them elected and to build the skills of the organization in the process such that you're better suited for all that other stuff that I just said for, you know, like labor, labor organizing and solidarity work and for fighting for universal social programs and healthcare and housing and education and so on. Awesome. To all I mean, that. That's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to do all that though. If yeah. you can't, if you can't find something on that list, well, I don't know what to tell you. I cannot help but mention like I like I brought up earlier, I went to vote today in Chicago. Uh, in Chicago elections, if you if a candidate does not win by at least fifty percent, we have a runoff um, where we go vote again. Where some people go vote again. I don't know. Um, it's kind of good in some ways, but also how many people get to the polls for that second vote? I don't know. Um, but we had the runoff election today. We are now poised um, to potentially have uh, up to five open socialists on city council. Yeah, 10% of the Ooh. council. So far, we have never in my lifetime or who knows in how long had one open socialist. I, uh, I do you know? No, I can't remember. I don't. I mean, ever? Have we ever? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe maybe at some point, but I let's just say never. There's never been. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's Chicago. We can say whatever we want and get away with it. Um, that's how it works around here. Yeah. Uh, so I'm after this, I'm heading over to an election party in Pilsen uh, where comrade and Democratic Socialists member of Democratic Socialists of America, Byron Cicho Lopez, ran. And based on the numbers, uh, he was the front runner in the original vote. So hopefully he won this. Uh, and uh, I just, I'm, I'm imagining, my, I'm going there after this, what it's going to be like if we see a bunch of socialists elected to city council tonight. And, w and we're going to learn so much uh, once they're on city council about all the things that we were talking about, how is the machine going to react? How are we going to hold them accountable? Uh, how do we continue building the movement? Uh, it's just, I, I, I had to bring it up. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys, it's overwhelming. In my opinion, Chicago DSA is like ground zero for municipal socialist politics right now. I had the extreme pleasure of being able to visit your fair city and talk to some Chicago DSAers, and y'all really know your shit. I mean, this is really inspiring to me because this is another thing that, that I think that socialists need to be doing around politics is just like learning who the people are in politics and how it works. Just wherever you are. Yeah, it because takes a while. It takes it, it takes several years of organizing, but we can get there. 
And once you do, though, you get to see strategic openings. You're like, you understand that actually all these people are a fucking joke. They all want the same thing, which is to advance their own careers and make money and make money for other people. And they don't have what we have, which is an inspirational message and a positive political vision that ordinary people might even remotely be attracted to. Yeah. Amen. And um, I think uh, the reason why it's so hard to find out what's happening uh, right where you live, hyper-local information, um, is because uh, doing so gives people a lot of power. And so, um, you know, I think it's really not a coincidence. I, I, I tried really hard before these past couple of years in the past to invest, investigate local Chicago politics, find out more about how the city functioned and how it related to the state apparatus. And even now, sometimes trying to figure out, you know, how, how come this bill didn't get passed um, or how come this bill passed, but it didn't get signed by the governor and nobody knows the answer to the question. And I think, um, I think that serves a lot of very powerful people that these, these mechanics, these mechanics and machinations are so hard to figure out and track down and and organize against because of that. And they're also really complicated and boring. So it's like you you'll never learn unless you learn through struggle. And this is one of the other reasons why I would recommend that you know people get involved in electoral politics, socialist electoral politics, or class struggle electoral politics, wherever they are, is because only in struggle are you able to actually have like be invested enough that your attention is held long enough because you actually really want something and it's like your project and then you learn what the hell is going on because you're deep in the middle of it. Like I've lived in, you know, Berkeley and Oakland for years and I lived in San Francisco before that. I didn't understand the city politics at all because even, even though I tried, like I would try to read the news or whatever, it just, I couldn't pay attention. One single race from beginning to end where I was deeply involved, which was the Javanka Beckles race that I was telling you guys about earlier. And I feel like I just completely boned up on who the players are, what their terrible politics are, what their sort of relationships to each other are, and what the, you know, very, the difficult places and also the strategic openings are for socialists. Whew. Well, comrade, I think we call that praxis. <laughs> yep, that is praxis. Um, Megan, thank you so much for being on Season of the Bitch. Uh, this was an awesome discussion. It was really great uh, to, to hear about all the ways that socialists don't have to lose hope and can get involved and um, change the world. And I really appreciate you coming on and talking about all this stuff. Um, so, yeah. Thanks very much. Well, this has been great. Thank you guys so much. Hopefully we can do it again down the line. You know, once he's either won or lost and things either become a utopia or a dystopia, we can do another episode. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A, follow, a part two. post they, they won't take our microphones either way. So <laughs> that is all for today. As always, uh, go to Patreon and give us all of your money. Uh, don't keep any for yourself. That's greedy um you can tweet at us at season of the b you can gmail us season of the b at gmail.com talk to us about your ideas um definitely don't send us any criticisms but send us anything else including music if you're not a dude and you make music you can also follow us on instagram at season of the b check out our website subscribe to us to uh, get a, a, what is it, an RTSS feed or whatever that RSS new thing. Feed, yeah. Mm, yeah, an RSS feed. People love that stuff. You could do that. Um, you can also uh, rate and review us so that other people see that we're awesome. Um, if you don't like us, don't bother. Other than that, um, I think we're going to head out. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Lolita. Bye. Oh, we're supposed to say love you. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. (laughs) Season of the Bitch.